Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. In the U.S. legal system, defendants who can't afford an attorney are assigned a public defender. Rachel Chickerel is a public defender in our nation's capital. I'm a staff attorney at the Public Defender Service for the District of Columbia. Rachel's clients are often children from low-income households, and she's used to seeing a lot of egregious behavior directed toward them in the courtroom. But in 2017, she saw something truly shocking. That year, she took the case of a young defendant who we'll call D. Due to privacy, we're not sharing D's name or the nature of the allegation. At first, the case was proceeding normally. In juvenile cases in D.C., there are sort of three parties other than the judge. There is the juvenile probation office, there's the prosecutor, and then the defense. We were approaching sentencing. We all agreed that probation was the appropriate outcome. And since all parties agreed on probation, you'd think D. would simply get probation. But then, technology intervened. The court had ordered that D. undergo a violence risk assessment Meaning, an algorithmic report. A computer would take a bunch of data about Dee's life. It's basically a checklist of categories, such as impulsivity, coping skills, history of violence. Neighborhood details, friends, family habits. And it would use that data to predict Dee's likelihood of committing a future crime. When the risk assessment results came back, they asserted that Dee was a high risk of future violence. And when the prosecution saw the report, probation was suddenly off the table. They insisted that Dee be placed in juvenile detention instead. We were troubled, to put it mildly. We thought the test was ludicrous. This assessment technology had been a mainstay of the D.C. court system for well over a decade. It would be very difficult to overturn. Even so, Rachel asked to see the underlying data. We challenged the scientific validity of the test itself. We would obviously expect that an assessment tool that's going to have such a dramatic effect on a child's future, we would expect it to be accurate and to be the product of scientific evidence. But when Rachel saw the test methodology, she realized it wasn't scientific at all. It was just a jumble of random facts and racially biased observations. In the community organization category, the evaluator had written underneath lives in projects. And that was the basis for a heightened score for D. And another category, for example, was negative attitudes. And the heightened score was based on a note that says doesn't like police. Now, there are obviously plenty of reasons for a black male teenager to not like police. But that wasn't even the worst part about the assessment. This was. It had never been peer-reviewed. It had only been printed as an edited book chapter and used for an undergraduate student thesis. And it wasn't actually made for kids. So basically, the creators took a mix of different adult risk assessment tools and chose pieces that they liked and put them together with their own imaginative additional items and called it a juvenile risk assessment tool. So the results aren't repeatable or reproducible at all. So two different evaluators could use all the same data and come to completely different conclusions. 
For more than a decade, children in Washington, D.C. had been judged and even committed to detention facilities because the courts had relied on an algorithm based on an unpublished thesis by a college student. I mean, it's completely outrageous. I don't know sort of how else to say it. It's like a perfect symbol of injustice in the criminal justice system. That's exactly what it is. The judge in this case threw out the test. But criminal assessment tools like this one are being used across the country. And not everybody is lucky enough to have a public defender like Rachel Chickerel in their corner. Algorithms pervade our lives. They determine the news we see, the prices we find, the products we buy, and increasingly, the sentences we receive if we are convicted of a crime. Do computers have a role to play in the justice system? Or is it inherently unjust to put a person's life in the hands of an algorithm? For The Atlantic, I'm Derek Thompson. This is Crazy Genius. I think we have a societal problem of automation bias where by default we just assume because something is data-based or because something is technical, it's therefore more objective than current practices. Rashida Richardson is the director of policy research at the AI Now Institute. She studies the use of artificial intelligence, which basically means computers automating human thinking. She's particularly interested in AI's role in the legal system. It's being used at most decision points in the criminal justice system, starting with policing, where you have predictive policing, which attempts to anticipate where a crime may occur or who may commit a crime. And then from pretrial risk assessments, which determines who will go to jail before trial and sentencing and parole and probation. So pretty much every decision point that affects a person's life in the criminal justice system, some type of automation or algorithmic system is being used. You can understand why a reasonable person might want to bring technology into criminal justice. The U.S. imprisons more people than any other country in the world. More than two million adults are being held in American prisons and jails. Whether you think this is necessary or an atrocity, one thing is for certain. It's a huge public expense. So today, almost every state in the U.S. is turning to just this sort of technology— algorithms to predict who will commit a crime, who should go to jail, and who should get out early. There is some rational basis for why I think people think these types of systems would work better, but I think they are based on a fundamental misunderstanding of how they're created and the problems embedded in those processes. Take, for example, a practice that Rashida already mentioned called predictive policing. That's where police use data about past crimes to predict where future crimes will happen. Sounds perfectly sensible in the abstract. There's just one problem. The data is dirty. A lot of the data that is used in these systems is biased in a number of ways. We looked at jurisdictions that had recently adopted predictive policing technologies or in the process of developing it or previously used it and also had long histories of misconduct and discriminatory police practices and policies. And we found that those practices and policies shape the environment and methodology by which the data is created. 
Can you give me an example? Yes. So I'll give you the most egregious example, which is Chicago. Chicago has a terrible history with policing. They've been under consistent investigation over the past couple of decades for their policing practices. For a long time, civil rights advocates have said Chicago police unfairly target black men. But in the last few years, Chicago police have used an algorithm to assist their policing. They created what's called a strategic subjects list to identify individuals that will either be a victim or a perpetrator of a shooting or homicide crime. The technology predicts who will commit future crimes based on huge data sets of past crimes. It was supposed to make policing more accurate, more efficient. But Rashida's organization found something else. We found the same demographic of people that were disproportionately targeted by Chicago police, which the majority were young black men, were the same demographic that this system was predicting as being likely of committing a crime. But when researchers did a deeper dive into the research, most of the people who were targeted or listed as high risk had never been arrested or had any type of adverse interaction with the police department. This tool is supposed to help the Chicago police do their job more effectively. And the department has said the tool is just that, that it isn't used for arrests or even questioning. But Rashida says that since the police are identifying potential crimes based on years of systemic racism, she worries it could just lead to more racist policing. Now, imagine that you've been swept up in this dirty dragnet. The courtroom is supposed to be where the truth will set you free, where cooler heads prevail. But as we saw with the case of D in the District of Columbia, algorithmic garbage is everywhere. And the courtroom can be the dirtiest place of all. I was like, wait, there's a tool that actually gets to help decide whether you're put into jail or <laughs> prison or not? Like, that talk about high stakes. I did not expect that. Julia Angwin is an investigative reporter who writes about technology. Several years ago, she was researching the way these algorithmic tools are being rolled out in courtrooms across the country, often without any oversight or viability studies. That's when she discovered the tragic case of Paul Zilly. So Paul Zilly is a guy who lives in Wisconsin who has struggled with a drug addiction most of his life. And he was arrested for stealing a lawnmower out of a garage that he was going to sell for parts to fuel his drug addiction. So Paul was a regular <laughs> in court. He was known to the prosecutor and his public defender cut a deal with the prosecutor, as is very common in these cases. They went before the judge to advocate for a one-year sentence. But just like in the case of D, technology intervened. The judge received an algorithmic risk assessment score for Paul. This wasn't the same tool used in D's case. It was another algorithm designed by a private company. It was called Compass. And because Paul's score was really high, the judge said, I'm giving you a higher sentence than I would normally have given. The judge rejected the plea deal and sentenced Zilly to two years in state prison and three years of supervision. Paul Zilly's lawyers appealed. They wanted to see the code behind the Compass tool. They wanted to know what data had convinced the judge to double their client's sentence. The response? No, you cannot have access to that. It's trade secrets. The companies have made strong claims that their algorithms are trade secrets. I don't understand how that fits into our framework of having the right to defend yourself. I don't understand how 
a defendant argues against a score? How do you go to court and say, I'm not a four, I'm a seven, or I'm a two, not an eight? In Franz Kafka's dystopian novel, The Trial, a man named Joseph K. is arrested and prosecuted by a remote authority. He cannot appeal his conviction, and he never learns why he's received his sentence. In Paul Zilli's trial, the remote authority was a private risk assessment algorithm. It could not be cross-examined, and it would not explain itself. When I first encountered it, I was more dumbfounded than anything. Like, the idea that something so unscientific could be used in the real world. Julia Angwin wanted an explanation. She was working with the investigative journalism outlet ProPublica at the time, and she and her team dug into the data. What we decided to do was figure out if the tool actually worked, right? We went and did a public records request for all the people who had been scored by this algorithm in Broward County, Florida. The reason we chose Florida was because they have very good open records laws. And so we were able to get the names and details of 18,000 people, all of whom had been arrested in a two-year period, and the score that was assigned to them. So one through 10, were they likely to go on to commit a future crime? Then we spent six months tragically and difficultly <laughs> looking up the criminal records of every single one of those 18,000 people. Oh, my God. Yes. Uh, we used automated means. Obviously, we used computer programs to scrape the, all the databases. And we were able to get it down to a set of 7,000 people where we could say for sure that we knew what had happened in the two years after they had been scored. And we could tell you whether they had gone on to commit a future crime as predicted. Her conclusion about the Compass algorithm? It overpredicted criminality among black defendants and underpredicted it among white defendants. So 60% of the time, the algorithm would correctly predict that somebody would go on to be arrested in the following two years. But the 40% of the time it was wrong, which is a huge portion of the time, it was twice as likely to give a black defendant an incorrect high-risk score when they were actually low-risk, and it was twice as likely to give a white defendant an incorrectly low score when they were actually high-risk. So the false positives yes. were twice as likely to hurt black defendants. Correct. And underestimate the white defendant's likelihood of recidivism. Correct. The Atlantic reached out to the algorithmic tool's creator, a company then called North Point, now called Equivant. We corresponded over several emails. They ultimately declined to comment. In a 2016 document, the company rejected the conclusions drawn by Julia's team. Equivant said, quote, ProPublica focused on classification statistics that did not take into account the base rates of recidivism for blacks and whites, end quote. ProPublica disputes that assertion. Rashida and Julia have painted a damning picture of a justice system utterly corrupted by a tool, a technology, that seems inherently biased, often wrong, and arguably racist. But human judges can also be biased, and often wrong, and arguably racist. Isn't it possible that a well-designed tool could help our police and our judges be better? 
Every time a human is involved, there's always this potential for bias. I do think that algorithms, like any other tool, can help us make better decisions. We'll be right back. So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between, like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So, Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly. How much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. So one thing that algorithms are very good at is making predictions. And humans are, I would say, okay at this, but not great. Sharad Goyle is an assistant professor at Stanford University, where he studies how computers can improve public policy. Unlike Rashida Richardson and Julia Angwin, he thinks criminal justice algorithms could help us. Not because they're so perfect, but because humans aren't. Humans... I think we can make predictions in situations where everything is a little bit fuzzy and where we can rely on our intuition, but it's difficult in these highly structured environments like weather. Um, and in, in the criminal justice system, it's hard to make predictions about who's going to go out and commit a crime. Where do we see human bias in the criminal justice system? I guess the real question is where don't we see human bias? Everything that happens in the criminal justice system involves a human in, in some way, and every time a human is involved, there's always this potential for bias. In particular, he says human decisions are helplessly biased by race. Like the algorithms, judges make assumptions about defendants based on their family, their neighborhood, their friends, and of course, their criminal history. But in the U.S., all of these factors are tinged with racial inequality. In the U.S., for better or for worse, Everything is connected to race. That's just a reality of life. From policing to education to income, everything is related to race. People with longer criminal histories tend to skew disproportionately Black and Hispanic. And do you believe that data and statistics can help human beings in the criminal justice system overcome these biases? I personally hate that phrasing of algorithms are going to come and save the day. But I do think that algorithms, like any other tool, can help us make better decisions. For example... Sharad has done a lot of work designing algorithms to reduce bias in pretrial decisions. So shortly after arrest in the U.S., usually about one or two days after someone is arrested, the defendant will come in front of a judge, and the judge has to make this decision about whether or not to release this individual pending trial. So this is a very high-stakes decision. If the judge determines that the individual poses a threat to public safety or may not return to court if they're released, then they might be detained. In that case, the individual might lose their job, they'll be disconnected from their family, and all sorts of bad consequences can ensue. Now, typically, how is this decision made? Well, a judge will, will call the defendant in, will look deep into their eyes and say, are you the type of person that's going to go out and commit a crime or, or fail to show up to court if I release you? Now, that's maybe a little bit of a caricature, but I would say it's, it's not actually that far off from what these types of proceedings look like. But now, he says, algorithmic tools can help judges make these decisions in a fairer way. 
for example, New Jersey, just a couple of years ago, decided to roll out pretrial risk assessment algorithms across the state. And what they found is that when they did this, their pretrial jail population dropped, and if they didn't see any kind of increase in pretrial crime. Now, you might be thinking, okay, maybe New Jersey's bail tool is effective and fair, but there are so many criminal sentencing algorithms that aren't. So I was curious to know what he thought about Compass, the tool in Wisconsin that Julia Angwin found to be biased against black defendants. He agreed there were problems. This company that makes Compass has decided to seal some of the details of their algorithm. And so you can look at the factors that go in to the algorithm, and you can see the scores for individuals, but you don't know exactly how those scores are computed. You know, one argument is that if they were forced to reveal their secret sauce, then that would take away the incentive to innovate. I personally don't buy that argument. Sharad has studied other open source algorithms, and he says they're just as good. So there's no point to keeping these all-important tools a secret from the public. The problems from secrecy are pretty enormous. Now a defendant can't interrogate the system that is in part responsible for all of these outcomes that, that they're going to experience. And this, to me, feels like a serious violation. Sharad says it's absolutely critical that criminal justice algorithms are transparent for two reasons. First, because human decision-makers are not. We already have black boxes making decisions for us all the time. You know, they just happen to be sitting in black robes. And this is, I think, super problematic. You know, maybe an ex post rationalization can be given by a judge about why some sentence was made or, you know, some explanation can be given. But is that really what's going on? Probably not. And that, I think, is one of the values of algorithms, at least ones that are transparent and well-constructed, is that they can offer some explicit justification for the decisions. A decision-making algorithm that's public, whose details can be seen by all parties, judges, juries, lawyers, journalists, even voters, would allow us to have a public and fully informed debate about the biggest questions of criminal justice. When we're making a decision, what data should we ignore, say, a defendant's race? And what data should we consider, say, a defendant's criminal history? And what weight should we give to the information that we have? In short, how do we, as a society, define fairness? An individual comes in front of a judge, judge has to make this decision. What is the judge going to base that decision on, based on one's criminal history, based on all these other factors? Today, judges are making decisions based on factors that are racially unequal. But a fair and transparent algorithm could eliminate those factors, or at least reduce their importance, so that judges would make decisions that were more race-blind. I don't think we can make perfectly fair decisions. But what I think we can do is make better decisions. And that's where these algorithms are, are coming into play, that at least they're telling us what is the basis of these decisions. They're getting rid of kind of the most obvious versions of implicit bias and saying, here are the factors. And now we as a society have to decide, are we comfortable making decisions about pretrial detention based on these factors? Are we comfortable detaining people that have long criminal histories? And are we 
comfortable detaining people in many cases who are younger because we know that that is predictive of recidivism. I have been called a technophobe from raising these criticisms, but that's why I always preface my criticisms with the fact that technology is a tool that can be used for good or bad, and currently it's bad. Rashida Richardson, again. But I do think there are ways to pivot the conversation so it can have value added to everyone rather than just benefiting a few people. Would you agree that it's possible that the criminal justice system might be improved by wisely applied technology that aims to reduce overall bias and equalize its outcome, provided that the data and the algorithms themselves are public so that they can be seen, evaluated, interrogated, and debated? It is possible, but I think the transparency around the use of these systems needs to be up front and before they're deployed. And there needs to be a broad conversation about whether that's the right use. We actually did develop a framework to help facilitate that type of process called an algorithmic impact assessment. And there we drew on the history of other impact assessments. So they're used in environmental studies. So if you're going to build a bridge, you have to do an impact assessment of it to assess not only the environmental factors, but also who's going to be displaced or possibly harmed by a system. And I think that type of framework allows broader community discussion about whether this is the right way to achieve a certain goal or if there's alternatives. It's a great analogy. Too many criminal justice algorithms are private technologies. But as long as they can determine the future of any defendant who appears in a courtroom, they are as public as a road, as a bridge. This technology is an infrastructure. And just as public infrastructure deserves public scrutiny, these AI should be simple enough that researchers, lawyers, and even the public can look at them, understand them, debate them, and even change them. The research from Julia Angwin and Rashida Richardson is devastating in its indictment of how predictive policing and criminal sentencing algorithms are working today. But I can't fully reject Shard Goyle's optimism. The U.S. criminal justice system, like every country's, relies on human decision-making, which is hopelessly and predictably biased. We are all faulty algorithms, and our code is closed. Our officers and judges, parole panels, are black boxes in uniforms. It's time to bring this decision-making into the light. And public algorithms could do just that. If we want to reduce prison populations, reduce sentences, and reduce crime, all without unfairly targeting minorities, Goyle says we need to give tech a chance to succeed where humans have so often failed. These are hard questions, but we can't just not make them. We have to make a decision at the end of the day. We can't say, oh, I don't have a perfect answer to this, and so therefore we're not going to make any decisions. Because a decision will be made. The question is, are we going to be thoughtful and transparent about it, or are we just going to bury our hand in the sand and say, well, let's just keep on doing what we have been doing?
Crazy Genius was produced by Patricia Jacob and Jesse Brenneman, with help from Kevin Townsend. David Herman is our engineer. Breakmaster Cylinder composed our theme song and all the music in this episode. Special thanks to Sirkan Piantino and Sir Yamatu. This episode is part of our project, The Presence of Justice, which is supported by a grant from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation's Safety and Justice Challenge. Catherine Wells is the executive producer of Atlantic Podcasts. Adrian LaFrance is our executive editor. If you like what you heard, please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Derek Thompson. See you next week. 